I think it's a perspective that too few sellers have is they tend to think that, well, my customer's buying my product. And really what your customer is doing is they're choosing, to your point, they're choosing an organization to work with. And those are distinct. And so, yeah, when you're talking about who you have out there representing you and how they represent the organization, the values of the organization, I mean, that's that's really important because that's what the buyer largely is choosing is your organization based on their experiences with your salespeople. Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello there. You are listening to Revenue Insights. Today, my guest is author, podcaster, and speaker, Andy Poole. Andy has spent his career teaching salespeople how to master their craft whilst achieving their goals in life and in sales. Andy, pleasure to chat to you today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Lee. Thank you for having me. Yeah, as I said, it's an absolute pleasure. And I suspect that some of the listeners will have come across some of your work before, either through the podcast that you host or even on LinkedIn or and beyond. But for anyone that hasn't, and in fact, for those folks that have come across you, can you give a little bit more context around your story and how you've got to where you are today? <laughs> well, I'm really old, so it take a long time. But yeah, I'll divide it into sort of chapters. You know, first couple of decades of my career working yeah, primarily for startups in a different variety of different fields. So I did work with Apple in the very early days of Apple, then moved into selling large complex communication systems, which I did for uh, multiple startups, grew them into successful exits. And in the year 2000, after, gosh, spending 15 years traveling the world incessantly, decided to sort of take a step back and share some of the things I'd learned in the business of selling. How do you, how do you sell large complex systems as a small company with no track record, no brand name, competing against really big name companies? and do it very successfully, which was sort of my specialty. And so I started a consulting company to help teach smaller companies how to go out and compete for big business. And then, gosh, in 2012, I started to get the bug to write a book, and that's now turned into three books, fourth one on the way. I started a podcast in 2015 that uh, we did about 1,200 episodes of. I, that podcast was acquired yeah. a couple of years ago. And once my contract was over with that, then I started a new podcast called the Win Rate Podcast. So a previous podcast was the Sales Enablement Podcast. And yeah, we changed things up a little bit with the new format. And I started working on that. Got a fourth book coming out uh, next year, hopefully. So yeah, yeah, I'm sort of out there. <laughs> <laughs> a few people find me LinkedIn or podcast or somewhere. Yeah. I think 1,200 podcast episodes, is, it's fairly out there. I feel like I'm currently running at fairly rookie numbers in comparison to that. So. Well, the fact you have as many as you do is is a testament to what you're doing because the average number of podcast episodes, at least this was true about five years ago, the average number of podcast episodes of somebody produced before they quit was seven. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that is crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's hard work. I mean, especially to you know keep doing it week after week or 
yeah, multiple times a week, whatever your schedule you're on. So kudos to you. Well, thank you. And I know actually we go into very similar topics. And I guess I want to start then based on kind of your background, a lot of the stuff that I think both of us talk about quite a lot. But I know from listening to your podcast, there's a lot of focus on the individual seller and how they can achieve their goals. And I'm just quite interested at a very high level for sellers in 2023 and going into 2024 as as we are, as we record this. Sure. What would you say is the biggest challenge or challenges facing sellers at the minute? It's loaded, I know. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's hard to come down with just one, right? But I think that, that I think the hardest challenge, or maybe biggest challenge, however you want to phrase it, is as I wrote about my last book, Sell Without Selling Out, is how do you stay true to yourself as you sell? And, and by staying true to yourself, meaning how do you develop your own process, your own style of selling that's aligned with your strengths and your value, your values, and bring that to bear on the customer and sort of resist the things that perhaps are being pushed upon you by your sales manager, your boss, and so on, which don't increase the probability of you succeeding. And this is sort of the basic conundrum for a lot of sellers, because ideally, you would want to put yourself in a situation where you have the support of your boss to have the autonomy to be able to develop your own style. But one of the things we've seen over the last 10, 20 years in sales, especially with the growth of sales technology, is, is and not criticizing technology, but just the way it's been implemented by so many managers is more as instruments of command and control rather than instruments to help sellers be the best version of themselves. And so that's really your challenge as a seller is how do you take responsibility for becoming the best version of yourself in order to provide yourself the opportunity to succeed and provide the type of yeah, fulfillment in work and compensation and earning power that you want to be able to support your family and lifestyle and so on. What do you think is the root cause of that? Because what was coming up to me as you were kind of explaining it was almost a sense of alignment between certainly the individual and their own style. But I'd imagine that also extends to the the seller themselves aligning with the values of the organization that they're selling for as well. So what would you say is the root cause of perhaps why sellers don't have or aren't adopting their own style? Well, it's several fold. One is pressure from management to conform to a process that somehow somebody thought, wow, this is the way we need to sell, right? This is the problem with that is that, you know, especially in the software world, you look at that and say, well, geez, this is a business, the SaaS business that operates on low win rates, right? It's very typical low win rates in the 20 to 30% range. And it's like, well, that's not success. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, why are you modeling yourself on something that loses substantially more often than it wins? So, yeah, but you have managers that sort of are, have implemented these processes, procedures, and they're really more focused on having people comply with those than really becoming, the, I said, the best version of themselves. And that being the case, and I, yeah, I think there's been some change in that, certainly, but it's, it's really up to you as an individual to take control of your career and how you sell, because no one cares about your success except you. I mean, really, at the bottom line, no one really does. I mean, and certainly no one, if they do, they don't care as much as you do. So you have the obligation to yourself and to your career to put yourself in the right situation where you can grow, where you can develop, where you are given the support from 
your management to help develop in a way that, as I said, is aligned with your strengths. And they exist. Those situations exist. Those great managers exist. You really have to go find them, right? You have to be deliberate about when you're looking for your next opportunity. You may have a former client, a gentleman named Brandon Fluharty that writes in a lot about seven-figure earnings, seven figures in SaaS. And I coached him on his first million-dollar year. And the thing that, yeah, he and I both agree on and we talk about is that you can have skills to be successful, but if you're not in the right situation, right, then you're not going to be able to use those to the fullest and you won't achieve at the level that you want. So as an individual contributor, to really to start with, many of the biggest challenges find the right situation, right? Is when you go out looking for your next job, your next gig, whatever you want to call it, is you have to exercise due diligence. And you have to really look at it from the perspective, you're hiring a boss. More than them hiring you, you're hiring a boss, you're hiring an organization that's going to provide a situation where you can succeed at the level that you want. And that's the approach you have to take is, you know, are you not just going out and begging for a job, but you're really interviewing them to say, okay, is this really going to be a fit for me? How would you, if you were to maybe roll back the years a little bit, just a few, and to go through that process again of perhaps like trying to find the right place that fit your values and your skills, what would you be looking for to, to find that fit? Well, for me personally, is I was looking for someone that I thought would really challenge me, but not challenge me in a micromanagement type <laughs> standpoint, but, you know, A, what's going to give me the autonomy that I wanted, but was really going to challenge me to think more deeply about what I was doing and how I was accomplishing it and challenging me all along the way. I'd like to tell the story. Somebody asked me once about, you know, how did I choose where to go to work? And I said, you know, I looked for, instead before I tried to hire bosses. And then, yeah, I wanted one that kind of scared me a little bit, right? Where I wasn't, I didn't want to walk out of an interview and say, hey, I've got this, right? Oh, that's be great. This is, you know, I got this nailed. I wanted to walk out of the interviewer with a job offer thinking, wow, this is really going to be hard. This is really going to force me to learn new things and to step outside my comfort zone and develop and grow. That's what I wanted. And so that's what I looked for. And so for me, it was, Again, I knew I had value to offer the companies. And that's as a seller, you want to have that approach. Is you're not begging for work. You're actually, you're, you're selling your value to them, right? That they're going to benefit from as an organization. You just want to make sure you work for somebody that can help you bring that out. And again, for me, it was, I wanted to work for smart people. I wanted to work for people that uh, yeah, were reading books, were, were innovative, didn't think, hey, there's only one way to do things, and it's this way. Yeah. I mean, I'm not that I'm a nonconformist, but I, yeah, always had my own way of doing things. And that's, I looked for those, that autonomy was really important to me. Just a quick reminder, and then we will be right back to the show. At Revenue Insights, our goal is to share how top performing revenue leaders build predictable, efficient, go-to-market teams. Every week, we speak to the brightest minds, and every quarter, we release the latest findings from our analysis of billions of dollars in pipeline. If you don't want to miss out, Sign up to our newsletter at ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. That's ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. The link to make that a little bit easier for you will be in the show notes of this episode wherever you're listening. See you there. 
And I suppose when you switch the perspective as well, so from the hiring manager's perspective, from be it the sales manager or the sales leader in the organization, I'd assume it's the same kind of approach and process for them in terms of understanding, okay, what are our values as a business and finding the right sellers that align to that as well to make sure that you're getting the best fit there. Yeah, but I think that managers, hiring managers in general kind of lazy. And again, they're looking at this as a process and maybe we have a process, we you know use a grading system of some sort and we grade people along the way. You know, the extra data points are, are fine. But where most hiring managers sort of fall is they don't really understand what their customers need from their salespeople, right? And I, I challenge hiring managers. So, so tell me, have you asked your customers what they need your salespeople to be? Because my perspective is, is that customers, prospects, hire you as a salesperson to help them make progress toward making a decision. That's really the relationship. You're being hired by the buyer to help them make a decision. What do they need you to be? If they're hiring a consultant to help them make this decision, what are the attributes that they would need that consultant to have? Well, those are the questions you need to ask your buyers. So it's not just a matter of doing your win-loss analysis, which is very important, and you come to some level of understanding, but it's actually being much more direct in than saying, well, what could we do to really better, to really help you as you're in this process, they'll tell you, you just have to ask. And so hiring managers need to add that step. So they know when they're interviewing people, they say, look, well, does this person really align with what our buyers need from us? In some cases, that may not be a specific knowledge set that they need, the buyers need. Sometimes they just need somebody who can come in and ask them the right questions, right? And if you're, you're a, those buyers hiring a consultant to come and help them make a decision, and this is a perspective that sellers should have is, the consultant's not selling anything at that point. They've already been hired, right? Their job is to go and ask questions, uncover the challenges and what the opportunities are and help the buyer really understand those. Well, that's what you're trying to do as a salesperson. I really like the, um, I guess, feels like bottom-up kind of approach that you take to it in the sense of it's not even setting or defining what the values are. Like, uh, I mean, for the business itself, so like, i.e. coming from the top down, so, so often the values that business demonstrate often reflect those of the, the CEO, the co-founder. Actually, by the sounds of it, what we're talking about here is no getting under the skin of it. It's actually talking to the buyer themselves and understanding from their perspective what it is that they are looking for, be it you talk about the type of buyer that they want to buy from, but this is also the type of business that they want to buy from as well, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, it's part and parcel of it is... is and I think it's a perspective that too few sellers have is they tend to think that, well, my customer's buying my product. And really what your customer is doing is they're choosing, to your point, they're choosing an organization to work with. And those are distinct. And so, yeah, when you're talking about who you have out there representing you and how they represent the organization, the values of the organization, I mean, that's... That's really important because that's what the buyer largely is choosing is your organization based on their experiences with your salespeople. Yeah, because I love the concept of it. How do you start to translate that through to coaching reps from that perspective? And because I think it's, well, in my head, it feels like quite a difficult one and perhaps it's not. But going through, okay, you talked about it earlier with like a win-loss analysis 
for example, when you're doing that, do you try to do that through the lens of like trying to make that more biocentric or what would you say your approach is to it? Yes. I mean, <laughs> it's the start of being biocentric is it's certainly a buzzword people use and it's so rarely, rarely done, right? But again, the data from Gartner and other research reports pretty clear that it's not the product or price that wins the deal. It's the buyer's experience with your, your organization and particularly your salespeople when they're going through their process. So you can start take a number of things that you do as a salesperson and say, well, geez, these have no value at all for the buyer. Should I be really salesy? That has no value to the buyer. It's, so why do we do those things? So when you start working with individual sellers to say, okay, how do we, how do we become more buyer-centric? The ultimate goal is how do, you, how do we win a higher fraction of our opportunities? As we start, start right at the beginning, it's this our mindset of, you know, what are we there for? And what are we trying to help the buyer accomplish? And it's not about us and our process. And so I've never been a big believer in these sort of linear stage-based sales processes, which really have become codified by CRM systems. And maybe it's because you know, I was in the business for decades where there were CRM systems, but that hasn't really helped because what it's done is saying, look, as we've, been co- we've codified this vision of what we think the buyer's doing, which bears no relation at all to what the buyer's doing. Just because we're in discovery doesn't mean they're in discovery. They don't know discovery from anything, right? So part of that is you really have to align with what the buyer is doing. And yeah, I think the buyer, again, been documented in several instances, but the buyer really has about three jobs they need to get done. They need to define what their challenges are and what the outcomes they are they want to achieve. They need to identify and create options for how they want to achieve their desired outcomes. And then they have to choose who they want to do that with. That's what they're doing. And so as a seller, you really should say, well, geez, how do I align with what I'm doing with what they're doing? Right? How do I help them define their challenges? How do I help them define the outcomes that they want to achieve? How do I help them identify options or create options? Because we know when people make decisions, they want to choose from options. And studies don't generally, they have, no, I think it's about, I forget the exact number, 70 or 90% of the cases, I forget that. One of those two, uh, based on some work done by a professor in the United States, is people choose between two options generally. Okay. So you want to create a couple options for, for the buyers to choose from. And then just their experience of working with you and how you help them go through these accomplishing jobs influences whether they're going to choose you or not. And study from Gartner that came out this spring, the nine most important factors in the buyer's choice of vendor. Number one was trustworthiness. Number two was adaptability. You know, is the seller able to adapt the way they sell to align with how we're buying. And of those nine most important reasons, product and price weren't on it. What was coming up to me that I'm, I'm actually quite intrigued by as you talked about it was a little bit earlier you were talking about kind of your approach, perhaps because of when you were selling, probably is less process oriented and, and probably more, I don't know if this is fair to say, but more kind of instinctive approach to selling. And I mean that in the sense of listening to the buyer and so instead of, oh, I'm going to follow this playbook and that's going to get me the result that I want, instead it's listening to the buyer and aligning it to, here's how I can actually help you. What I wanted to ask was, because I guess in 
well, certainly in my experience, the usually to answer the question of how do we make this scalable, the answer usually is, well, we create a process because then we can repeat it and we do it over and over again and we see this wonderful hockey stick graph. So if we don't follow a process, <laughs> pretty sure this is a horrible question. My response to that was always blah, 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 blah. But yeah, <laughs> How do you make it scalable? And for anyone listening to audio, I'm doing rabbit ears as I say that without process. You start with the person, right? And so at the heart of being able to operate at higher win rates is you have to understand how to sell your product and how to sell it at a high win rate, how to sell it so that you can win more than you lose. Meaning that when you make the choice as a seller to invest your time and effort and attention into an opportunity, that you have reason to believe that there's a high probability you're going to win. And you know why. So that has to come out fairly early in the conversations you have with the buyers. And part of it does get back to what you talked about in terms of instinct. But the instincts develop through experience, right? But yeah, when I took over sales teams of startups, you know, my goal was always, how can I double sales before I hire another salesperson? Because what I wanted to do is I wanted to teach, make sure that sellers knew, and I wanted to teach them how to sell what we had effectively. Meaning, how do we increase, ensure that every time we interact with the buyer, that as a result of that interaction, the buyer was closer to making their decision than they were beforehand. So laser focused on really the fundamentals of, okay, if I'm going to take some of the buyer's time, what are they going to take away from it? Trouble with playbooks is there's always, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. Or it's like, yeah, but why? What's the reason why? Right? What is actually going to happen? And the, again, the trouble with some playbooks is, you know, they're interesting as frameworks, but every single prospect is unique. I've never worked on a single opportunity. I've worked on hundreds throughout my career where it's identical to some other opportunity. They made their decisions the exact same way, the same number of people, the same personalities. What's the problem with some of these ways that you see sales managers try to put this process in place is they're assuming that, oh yeah, they're this ICP, this persona, you ask these questions, going to answer it this way. It's interesting as a framework, but you have to be in the moment and you have to understand that the framework is just that, it's just a framework. And everyone is going to have a unique perspective. And so I learned early in my career is that, and I don't remember exactly how I learned, I think sort of experience, but probably a boss maybe helped me as well, is you could have two companies that look identical from the outside. And they could be in the same business and they could be, you might think they're structured similarly and, and so on. But when you talk to the people on the inside, they say, oh, well, yeah, we're not like them. Right? We've got a different way of looking at how we do business. We've got a different set of values, perhaps. We've got a different perspective on how we capture new business, how we service our customers. Unless you go into an account alive to the possibility and the reality that everybody is unique and you try to find that uniqueness, you're just do another, you know, you're just be another faceless, nameless salesperson. But if you take the time to really understand that, then what happens? The buyer thinks, oh, they get me. They get me in a way no one else gets me. And yeah, <laughs> this is too numerous to count where when you ask customers why they bought from me, it's because you really got me. You made me feel understood. That's not magical skill. It's just taking the time and having the mindset to say, yeah, 
this is an individual that I'm dealing with. This is a unique individual or the unique set of individuals, stakeholders of that account. What's their unique view on the world? And if I can understand that, then I have a much higher chance of actually putting together a solution or an op- you know, a couple options that they can choose from that they're going to choose me versus somebody else because they're going to feel more comfortable that I really understood them. And this is something that I think sellers just don't get. So if you can, they're not taught by and large. So if you can help sellers get this, capture this mindset of not that everybody's the same, but the fact that within a framework, everybody's different. And if you can identify the differences, then you increase your probability of ultimately doing business with them. Well, I feel like there's an obvious question off the back of it then, Andy. How do you teach that for folks that are managers or or leaders in leadership positions listening and are listening going, yeah, this makes a lot of sense, but how do I do it? Yeah. I mean, you can have a training class on it, but it's really up to the manager, the frontline manager to coach this, right? As you're working with people and you go through the opportunities they're working on, and instead of just coaching the deal and the tactics, is sort of do your own discovery as a manager. So what's really going on in this deal? You challenge the seller to think more deeply about what's really going on. And so this really falls, you know, on the frontline managers, on the, the directors, is to be more rigorous in how you approach the opportunities you're working on and to understand there is this uniqueness. And every talk, you know, a lot of people you know, refer to, so, you know, salespeople lack acumen, and this is, frustrates the, the buyer. And sure, some of that exists, but at the most basic level, I think the acumen that's missing is that you know, we train sellers in this cookie-cutter approach to sales thinking that that is efficient, but it's not effective. And you can't be efficient until first you're effective. And so you have to train and coach and develop your sellers one-on-one as a manager. That's where the action takes place. It's not sales enablement. It's not, you know, they have a role to play. But my experience over decades has been as the people that make the biggest improvement are the people that have the most effective coaches. And there's been some independent studies that saying, you know, the most important thing you can do to uplift sales performance is more effective coaching. And I 100% believe that. So I'm a big advocate that we need to be investing more in helping our frontline managers learn how to do this coaching and give them the space to do this coaching. It's such an interesting point. What I was thinking about was, it's a bit like the chicken and the egg scenario of, well, we want to make it efficient, but we need to make it effective at first. But to make it effective, you need the patience and also the, I guess, almost intuition to work out what is effective. So what I'm interested by is whose responsibility is it to work out what is effective? Now, for how I imagine it, like a small company is, you know, that's perhaps founder led. It's often the founder that's kind of doing a lot of that early discovery of how do I work out how to sell my product? How do we get to the point of product market fit? But that's not going to be achievable for a, you know, an enterprise-sized company, for example, that is launching a new product per se. So whose responsibility is it and how do they go about proving an approach that is effective? It's a great question. First of all, you need to establish a metric for what effective is. And right now, the single best metric for <laughs> effectiveness is win rate. And you know, what percentage of your opportunities are you winning? And your qualified opportunities, right? So that is really should be the flagstone. 
And yeah, that people are saying, yeah, this is the thing that we're really focused on. Because and it sometimes requires some patience. In some cases, it might require a little bit of a step back, which is really hard in many organizations because, hey, they've unleashed the marketing engine, which is generating all this top of funnel activity, and yet it's yielding 25% win rate. And it's like, well, who's that benefiting at this point? And it is a transformation where the focus has to be on if we make a choice. And so part of the criteria, real big criteria to start turning things around is you have to establish the criteria for accepting something into your pipeline that's beyond, oh, just they're living and breathing, right? Or they're willing to have a conversation with us. Unfortunately, that's sort of the standard for most companies. And winning and winning at high rates is really a choice you make. It starts with a choice of who you're going to invest your time in. And so you want to have some criteria for that. And they can be formal criteria. I tend to operate a little more informally with some of that, where if I was talking to a seller and they said, yeah, I've got this new opportunity, even as early stage, I want to know, and I want them to be able to tell me, why were we going to win? Which is a challenge, right? But as a thoughtful salesperson, you need to know that. Why are you making the decision to invest your time in this? Oh, they said they were interested. Well, yeah, what? so what? So they're interested. Who cares? Why are they going to buy? Why are they going to buy from us? What's driving it? Now, they may not have all that information up front, but it's the type of thing that you train the sellers that they know they need to have that. And this is how I was trained by my, <laughs> a manager in one company that was, yeah, became a career-long mentor. Is, it was that degree of rigor that you're exercising the manager. It's like, okay, why is this happening? Why are you choosing to spend your time on this? Because it's time is limited. You know, it's, don't be cliche-ish about it, but it is. So the, the second part of that is organizations from effectiveness that they don't understand how much time they're spending on deals. They calculate CAC, and it's sort of this brute force calculation, which doesn't really mirror reality. But I do consulting engagements, depending on for like sales transformation efforts. And so I'll ask the CEO, first question. So tell me, on average, how many selling hours do you spend on an opportunity from initial point of contact to the close date? I have no idea. But that's, well, you want to know that, right? Because that's a measure of your effectiveness. Yeah, I had one client that was bragging about this, <laughs> came to me and was bragging about this big deal, the biggest deal that ever won the company history. I said, well, that's great. <laughs> and we sort of dissected it. And I looked up and I said, you can't do another one of these deals this year because it consumed so much of your time as an organization. Now, it's great as a learning experience because then they said, okay, we're not being very effective, right? It's like we're having, I think it was this one case that, you know, they're sort of bragging. Oh, we had 21 meetings with the prospect. I'm like, wow, shouldn't you do that in five meetings? Oh, and it's like hadn't dawned on them, right? They thought more meetings was better because they got more of the customer's time. It's like now the customer is trying to get their job done, which is to gather and make sense of the information they need to make an informed decision with the least investment possible of their time and attention and resources, right? They don't want to spend six months to make a decision on something they could spend three months on if you enable them to do that. So what people think is good, oftentimes in sales, actually is bad both for them and for the buyer. So it's effectiveness really, there's a whole different topic conversation, but this idea of what real productivity is in sales, what real effectiveness is in sales, really ultimately, time-based. How much time are you consuming in order to help a prospect make their decision? It is actually, I find a very interesting kind of 
segue and actually was something that I wanted to ask you coming into this because I know on your podcast you talk a lot about both the science and the art of selling and I think for the kind of the first half of our conversation today I think we've been talking a lot about the art of it and actually I'd like to ask you about the science of it and a bit like you alluded to there which is I think really interesting which is looking at the okay we've got this great deal that came in for seven eight figures wonderful but it took us a whole year to actually bring it in and it's like okay starting to break that down of where were we spending that time which to me is starting to get into a bit more of a data-driven approach to sales well it's gonna it should be much more data-driven than we are but the right type of data yeah right as for me, for many people data and sales means well, how many calls are you making what's your conversion rate yeah how many you know, how many proposals, blah, 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 blah. Instead of saying, how many hours are we spending on that? I mean, I don't, I don't care about the activities. What I don't know is the hours. I've managed teams using this, and so I set up a system to do this where we assigned job numbers to qualified opportunities, and salespeople charge their time, like consultants, to the job numbers. And sales engineering, if they support sales, they build their time to the... And if you had your VP, they charged their time. If they came and did a call, whatever, everybody that contributed. And so you captured all that time. You really understood as an organization what it took to win a piece of business. And, and most organizations are completely clueless about this. This is real productivity when you understand amount dollars of revenue generated per hour of labor, right? That was devoted to it. That's a productivity measure. And so I spent years managing sales organizations using this methodology. And so I could have two sellers that, let's say, theoretically, both, yeah, hypothetically, both generating a million dollars in revenue. And one took 50 hours to generate their selling time to generate that. And the other took 25. Well, that gave me a lot of information with which to work to say, okay, what's the difference? What's John doing that Joe isn't? Or alternatively, one seller generated a million dollars of revenue, but it took 100 hours of additional resources from the organization, and the other person only took 25 hours from the rest of the organization. Well, again, that gave me a lot of information to use to say, okay, well, what do we need to change about how this person's conducting their business? How can we help make them more effective, meaning that they are able to accomplish the same task with fewer interactions, consuming less of the buyer's time? What would you say, and I feel like that's a really nice example of how you leverage it. Could you perhaps give maybe another example of like how data can be used to make a seller more effective? So there are obviously lots of, as you mentioned, kind of data like activity numbers that don't help a seller to be more effective because, oh, just make more calls, just send more emails. It's like, well, I'll just send a random email off. I'll make a random call without actually putting any thought into why they are doing that. Outside of that, what kind of other, in your experience, other data points do you leverage to help sellers to be more effective? Well, I said, for me, it's time, as we talked about. That's the thing I'm focused on, because that's the most limiting factor. And if I know how much time, on average, it takes in terms of selling time to close an opportunity, then I can look forward and say, okay, I can tell you within plus or minus a few percent what our revenues will be next year because I know what we know. I know how effective we are. I know what our productivity number is, so to speak. That's pretty powerful. But I think the other thing with numbers, though, is that I challenge people on 
is to say, okay, yeah, gosh, you know, we sent out 100 emails to get five meetings, let's just say, or we, you know, we made 20 phone calls to get one meeting. Great. So how do we get one meeting and five calls? That's the challenge, right? It's, it's we don't use the numbers. You know, the numbers are inescapable in this business, but change the ratios. And it's not, I'm not talking about the conversion rate necessarily, but it's, yeah, how are we more effective? And most our minds are boggles when you read like LinkedIn and you just read all the advice about outbound and so on and so forth. And it's, and there's always this acceptance that it, it takes a certain amount. It's going to take 20 calls or 20 dials to get somebody, or it's going to take 100 emails, you know, get five. It's like, let's challenge those. Why does it have to be that way? What are you going to do differently? How are you going to target differently? How are you going to message differently? All these things. Because you were sort of in a rut, I think, in large respects. And it's really that sort of innovation where you can use the data to say, how do we get better? at this, but let's not accept sort of these constraints that sort of, or accept as constraints, some of the numbers that exist out there. And you work up this mindset that is prevalent on many sellers that, gosh, it's just so hard, right? That's a noisy environment, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, yes, it's hard. It's always been hard. It's not any harder today than it ever was. And so, what are you going to do to innovate as an individual, I think, not just as an organization, but even as an individual? What are you going to do within your own process? If you have to self-source leads, as I did for decades, just, yeah, how do you do that? How are you going to do it that's a little bit different? And it's going to improve your effectiveness when you're doing it. And that's the challenge is come up with something different. Because then I think that innovation will spur other innovation. And it's this is, you know, I talk a lot about sort of the compliance orientation of many sales managers. Well, we've got this process, just sell to the process. Yeah, the process sucks, right? I mean, if at the end of the day, your process yields, you know, it's 20% win rate, it doesn't matter whether you're hitting your numbers or not. That's just bad. You're leaving opportunities on the table. So let's not do that. Let's be better. Let's be more intentional about the actions we're taking. And this is, again, what I see missing too often in sales. And it's really leadership and management has to empower sellers, this autonomy to experiment and to become more effective. So how would a manager or a leader go about giving them that autonomy? And let me perhaps put a constraint on that. Because I think for a lot of businesses right now, you know, they're probably in a situation where it's like, well, I've got a handful of sellers who are hitting quota, and I've got a majority of my sellers who aren't. And then it's, oh, but I also want to give them a bit of time to experiment, which to me makes a ton of sense. But to someone that's perhaps under the cosh, got a number to hit themselves, and it's like, hang on, you know, they're not hitting the number as it is. Can I really give them time to go and experiment? What would you recommend? Yeah, it's hard to do a transformation and assume you're going to hit, you know, an aggressive growth number the next year. Yeah, I've been through it several occasions. We've had to change things dramatically within an organization. We had a bad a bad quarter, but then came out the other side, all guns blazing. There's always going to be a price at some point, but the price is, I mean, but the reward is substantial, right? We can kind of muddle along we're doing or, hey, we're going to do a little bit of reset. We can start something really basic. So to a point, example you were given, yeah, we've got a situation where so few sellers as a percentage are hitting their quota. You know, we've seen the numbers, you know, in B2B sales, 
40%, less than 50%. Most people say, yeah, as low as 40%. We need to reframe the way we look at that and look at not as a failure of sellers at quota, but instead of only 40% of sellers at in quota, rather that 60% of sales leadership is failing, right? Sales leadership has a 60% failure rate. So how are they going to fix that? It's not the sellers to fix it. It's up to management to fix this problem. And they're failing. So again, several things you can do. You think about how you set quotas, just as an example. I was speaking to this rep, 2019, fall 2019, I was presenting to a bunch of CEOs. They were the portfolio companies of a private equity firm. And we started went through this exercise. I had them raise their hands. I said, so how many of your sellers hit in quota? And they raised their hand and we finally got to, yeah, it's about 50%. So, okay, great. How many are you planning on raising quotas next year? Well, they all raised their hands. I said, so, yeah. How much should you go around the room? How much are you going to raise quotas by? You know, it came out to about 15% on average to raise quotas. I said, okay. So, raise your hands if you've invested in ensuring that your sellers are 15% more effective next year. Nobody. Crickets. Right. And this is what goes on and on, right? Is, is we're not enabling people to achieve at higher levels, let alone at the level they're currently at. So yet, let's go ahead and raise quotas. I understand the imperative to raise quotas. People want to grow and so on. But why not empower your organization to do that? So there's several things you can do as a manager. Well, several things you do as compensation to ensure managers do a better job, but we can save that for another time. But is what I did is I tiered, when I was running teams, I would tier quotas. So we had tiers of quota. But what I was trying to achieve was, not everybody had the same goals, is I wanted to ensure that people learned how to hit quota. That's what I wanted. I wanted as many people as possible to hit their quota. Because I knew that if they did, and they were took pride in the fact that, yeah, I hit my number, well, what do they want to keep on doing? Hitting their number. So you teach people how to hit their number. You make it, I don't say easy for them, but you make it, you smooth the path a little bit to help them. You give them extra resources, extra support when they're first coming in so that, you know, just not throwing them to the wolves, but you're trying to increase the probability that they're going to hit their numbers and they're going to feel this sense of success. And when they do, they want to keep on succeeding. It's like we try to just throw human nature out the window in sales. And so I'd put more emphasis on the people that were newer and younger and just getting into it. I wanted to make sure they experienced success right out the gate. I didn't hand them accounts. I wasn't doing, you know, for things like that. I was devoting more of my time with them to help them succeed. That's what you have to do as a manager. As you say, you know, it's not just going to focus my efforts. So many managers, yeah, I, I read, you know, LinkedIn's about post article. Oh, it's so frustrating. My manager's spending all the time with the bottom performers. They don't have any time for me. And that's, that's just BS. And in general, managers spend the bulk of their time with the top performers because that's where they think they're going to make their numbers as a manager. That's where they're going to get paid. But so we need to change the incentives for managers to understand their job is to develop everyone. And because you're building the capabilities of the organization they work for, not just you know, doing something for one year. So give them incentive to make sure that as many people as possible succeed. And then you can have somebody spend a certain amount of time at one tier of quota, and then the next period or year, they move up to the next tier once they've experienced success, and they'll bring their success with them. Just a quick reminder, and then we will be right back to the show. At Revenue Insights, our goal is to share how top-performing revenue leaders build predictable, efficient, go-to-market teams. Every week, we speak to the brightest minds 
And every quarter, we release the latest findings from our analysis of billions of dollars in pipeline. If you don't want to miss out, sign up to our newsletter at ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. That's ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. The link to make that a little bit easier for you will be in the show notes of this episode wherever you're listening. See you there. Beautiful thing I find about that as well, as I'm sure you can kind of testify, is for those younger, more experienced folks is as they are getting those wins and experiencing those wins and enjoying those wins is they are one, both learning along the way themselves, but those learnings then can be shared with the rest of the team. And actually almost by osmosis, it's then the successes that they have then being shared around, you know, to your high performers where it's, oh, I never viewed it in that way, or I never thought to ask that question, or I never thought to thread in that, 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 that persona or that stakeholder. And it offers a completely different perspective. It does. I mean, you get that sharing with an organization, which is, as you talk about, is so important, right? And yeah, it can happen both directions from high performers to newer people to newer people to high performers. But really the critical thing is just you're dealing with human beings. And as a manager, what you want to do is you want to talk to the people who work for you, understand the things that are driving them, you understand the challenges they have, put together a plan to help them overcome those challenges, achieve their goals. You do that. You build loyalty, which is important. If you can hang on to people for an extra year or two, that has a real price you can put on it, which is is valuable. Yeah, you're more likely to succeed in your job because you're going to have a higher fraction of your people hitting their numbers. I mean, again, a seller, a sales manager can't control necessarily what the number is given to you. But you want to develop as broad a bunch of, you know, a broad group of people who can hit it as possible. And so that, I think, is part of what's missing. And, it, and what happens, I think, is, certainly you see it, is sales managers, like a lot of people in sales, operate from a position of fear, right? Oh, God, we got to do these things, this quote-unquote proven process, because afraid I'm not going to hit my number. But the proven processes generally are pretty bad. And they're not yielding the results. You know, they're wheeling low win rates and few sellers hitting quotas. Change it. That's not the way of the world. That's not the way it has to operate. Andy, I want to ask one final question. What is one book that you'd recommend to salespeople, sales managers, sales leaders, the whole shebang, if you'd like? What would it be? That's an interesting question because there's lots of different ways to answer that. There's a, a serious answer, and people think I'm kidding when I say this, but is... I recommend people read Shakespeare. Mm, love it. Why? Because it teaches you how to communicate. And it does a couple of things. One is, is there's a great book written by a U.S. author, Harold Bloom, about, called Shakespeare and the Invention of the Human. And basically that Shakespeare, through his writings, really defined a lot of what we know as, as human interaction in the modern world. And I mean, Bloom's book is great. But yeah, just language is so important in what we do. And choice of words is so important. And yet it's not given the importance that it deserves. And when we're in a business where the margin between winning and losing is so small, I mean, you have to assume, and I tell people to assume that you win by 1%, right? If you're in a competitive deal, you just have to be 1% better. Well, what's that 1%? going to come from. And oftentimes, I think it boils down to how clearly you're communicating with the buyer at every step of the process. 
so they really understand what it is that they're going to be achieving using your investing in your product and service. And I just think communication is overlooked as a skill. So, I mean, it's not going to be for everybody, but I think there's no better place to read to learn how to really communicate with language than reading something like Shakespeare. I do think it's one probably one of my favorite recommendations that we've had in many ways, just because of the underlying value from it. And, and I suppose I come at this from a position of bias because I live in a marketing world as opposed to maybe full-on sales world. But the value of communication, but also the challenge of it is pretty remarkable from a marketer's perspective, especially when you're doing copywriting. I know there's plenty of people on LinkedIn that talk about all the skills in marketing that you need. Copywriting is the one. And it's like, well, why is that the case? And, and it's so often because you are trying to communicate so much with so little. And also it's a question of whether you are communicating what the, the message that you want to get across. Are you using the right words? And are you using the right words to the right person? So for example, if I am trying to communicate it to a quite a technical person, someone in revenue operations, for example, the language that I'm going to use is probably very different than someone who maybe a salesperson on the front line who's just like, you're using technical language, it's just going to go whoosh, where someone else is like, I get it. But that simplified language may not actually get across all the meaning that you want to get across. Well, yeah. I mean, you write for different audiences, right? As not just market, as a salesperson. You will necessarily write differently to the CEO than you will to appear at a similar level in an organization that you are, right? One will be a little more formal. But in all cases, what you're doing is when you, let's say when you write something to somebody, what you're really doing is you're asking them to invest some of their time and attention in something you're sending to them. And so you have a choice. I can ask them to spend more time with that by being less clear, where they have to come back and ask me a question, or they walk away with a misunderstanding and I have to invest more time later on to correct that misunderstanding, or I can invest time up front and just being more clear and concise in my communications and my choice of words. That's being effective. Absolutely. Andy, it's been a really, really valuable and insightful conversation. I'm going to move to wrap us up there. For everyone that's been listening and perhaps they're like, I probably feel a sense of, there's a lot of common sense in there. And actually, there's a lot more that I want to take from this. If they want to learn more about some of the stuff that you're talking about and what you're teaching to the sellers that you work with, where can they find you? Sure. Yeah, follow me on LinkedIn. And yeah, feel free to message me on LinkedIn if you want to have a conversation about anything. You can go to andypaul.com, my website. Uh, I've got some resources there. Yeah, listen to my podcast, The Win Rate Podcast. And uh, got my book here, plug it, Sell Without Selling. We talked about four. And this is really all about taking responsibility for your career and for the experiences you create with your buyers. Because those actually are the difference between winning and losing. Love it. And uh, I can highly recommend Andy's podcast as well. I've been devouring quite a lot of episodes coming into the conversation today. So I can rubber stamp that one with my approval. Andy, thank you so much again. And to everyone that listened this week, thank you so much. We'll catch you next week. Lee, thank you. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.